Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. This is Frank Joseph. I'm the author of an essay in the latest book, Lost Secrets of the Gods. Hi, this is Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Hi, this is Jesse Proofus, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Up. Hi, this is Tracy Roberts, founder of Closet Security. I'm Jeremiah Bomex, the producer of The Real of Horror. Hi, my name is Bill Hall, author of The World's most haunted house. Hi, this is Micah Hanks, and I'm the author of the book, The Ghost Rockets. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift Talk Show, blogtalkradio.com.
Mountaintops, mountaintops of Middle Earth. Orbiting above the Earth in a stolen alien spacecraft. The Graveyard Shift Online Radio Talk Show. Now, strap on your seatbelt, get ready to kneel, true believers, because here's your host, Emmy. listening to one of the most kick-ass tunes I've had the honor and pleasure of playing. It's called Let's Get Started by Holden Strianez and Ricky Mosher, two very talented musicians who are uh, affiliated with our official show composer, Daniel Edenfield of Throne of Anguish fame. And that's just one of a few tracks that I will play for them. I um, Hopefully, though, you know, the music will, uh, you know, work. You never know. So, um if some of if some of you by the way were not hearing me earlier, that's because we were having some technical issues with the mic. <laughs> Maybe that's a new year resolution. Uh it, you know, a better mic, right? That that's something that we could have. I don't know, we'll see. You know, Santa didn't give me one, so I got a a, a better monitor instead. Hurts my eyes to look at it. It's so big and beautiful and but but when I look at the monitor, it looks like I'm looking at a theater. And then I just strain my eyes, and it hurts. Oh, my God, it hurts so much. <laughs> so let me, um, let me clarify a couple things before we get started with this awesome show. I know that on the show information and description, it says that it's going to be like a countdown, or at least it should not say that. Originally, the show was supposed to be a countdown to midnight. Well, apparently, I can't do that. And I will wait a minute. You can blame Blog Talk Radio because uh, they have some shows that have already been scheduled to be countdowns to midnight. And apparently, in order to do a countdown show to midnight, you have to, I don't know, sign some kind of paperwork or something. (laughs) Uh, Where's our wicked stepbrothers at the authority smashing ours? They can protest for us. Well, maybe we can call them and they can do that. So, apparently we can't do the countdown. Oh, well. So what? I can still play a few interviews tonight. Um, and I'll play some music for you guys, because I know you y'all like to hear music. Who doesn't like to hear music? I know I like to hear it. And we'll also be talking, in fact, in a little bit, just a few minutes, 
we will be talking about the many different weird stories that have been happening this year. But before I go any further, I'm going to um, give you the number to call in if you would like to call in and be an official co-host for The Graveyard Shift. This is your one and only chance. You can call in area code 347 237 5187. That's area code 347-237-5187. So who knows what dark creatures will be calling us tonight during this show. So the show will not be until midnight, unfortunately. But yeah, well, see, there's my little co-host now, my little daughter, Emma. Emma, do you want to say something? Do you want to say something, Emma? Come here. Come here. Come here for a second. Come here. Yeah? All that? Oh. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, are are you my princess? Are you are you my little princess, Emma? She has to think about it. She's like, "I don't know. You're pressuring me." <laughs> she gives a little smile. "Are you my princess? Are you Papa's princess?" Aw. She gave me a kiss, so I guess that's a yes. Say hi. Say hello, Internet. Come on, say hi, Internet. Come on. (laughs) Okay, there you go, baby. Get down here. All right. There you go, guys. That's it. That's the closest any of you losers out there will ever get to my precious little angel. You'll never get closer than that. Oh, hey, look. It looks like I got a caller. Hey, who's this? You're you're listening Amy. to the graveyard ship. Uh, yeah, I know, Amy. It's Daniel. Who the hell are you? Daniel, you just dude, don't make me. <laughs> the hell is this guy, Daniel? Who the hell is Daniel? <laughs> My friends call me Daniel. Oh, da- oh, okay. Book 'em, Daniel. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Ladies and gentlemen, our official show composer, Daniel Edenfield of Throne of Anguish. Let's give them a big round of applause. I know they're they're, they're oh, well, applauding thank, right now. You, just, you can't hear thank them. You. I'm honored. That's the uh, that's the most applause I've ever gotten. I appreciate that. Oh, I I think uh, I think you might have gotten a lot more applause than that, my friend. You just don't know it yet. Uh, you just do not know yeah. it. Now, is it true that you are signed with Fangoria still through Throne of Anguish? Yeah, right now. Um, yeah, we Throne of Anguish. We signed with signed with Fangoria and um. That was from whenever I was doing my horror music. And uh, so, I mean, I signed on with them, and we're doing that. And, I mean, you know, next year I'm sure we'll be doing more stuff. I keep trying to get a hold of them, let them know, you know, hey, I'm still alive. But this is just a busy time of year for the horror people. And then, uh, of course, the Christmas holidays hits, and nobody can do anything pretty much except spend money. So it's (laughs) it's been busy. Right. Well, of course. Uh, absolutely. And that's good that it's busy because that means you get more work and gigs. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about your buddies over there? Um, whole, I, I hope I pronounced his name right. Holden Strianez? Is that how, I, is that how you um, pronounce his name? Strianez, Strianese. And, uh, he is a friend of mine, been a pretty good friend of mine for actually several years. And um, he's more into electronica. And, uh, I mean, as you can hear, that was uh, what you heard was Let's Get Started. It's a little uh, glitch-hop track that he works on. I mean, he's, he's just good. I don't know. He operates on a entire different plane of music structure than I do, and it's just fun to 
sitting around because, you know, we'll just sit and bounce ideas off of each other. But, uh, yeah, he's been a friend of mine for a few years, and then just recently I met, that's, that's his cousin, Ricky. And um, Ricky also does dubstep, and uh, he does, you know, his own sampling with his instruments, and uh, we just hit it off. And, I mean, it was immediately, you know, we're good friends. It's funny, I always say it, and it's true, is that uh, a lot of most good things in my life have probably come from D&D, and that's exactly how I met Ricky. Was uh, we were <laughs> I showed Holden and uh, showed my son uh, mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons one night, and then he got to telling his cousin, and then sure enough, we started playing D&D together. And <laughs> one thing leads to another, and we start talking about music. And I can't ever go. Awesome. You, know, you can't ever have a conversation with me and, without music popping up somewhere. So, well, of course but not. Yeah, no. Uh, right now, Daniel, are you are you yeah. are you on a landline or on a cell? Unfortunately, it's a cell phone. Okay, is there? Are, are do you have us on speaker? No, uh, I do not. Okay, just if if you can, I don't know if it's just me or how. Just try to get your your mouth as close to that speaker as you possibly can. I mean, I All can right. hear you, but just not perfectly well. But no, it's okay. I, I got just you. Do, yeah, yeah. Just do the best you can. That's it's okay. I can still hear you. I, you're, you're doing fine. All right. So uh, what we're gonna do. Um, Dan is we're going to go I'm going to go through some different stories and um, what I would like for you to do is you know obviously you can comment as much as you want Uh, normally I would say this to you uh, during call screening uh, you know while a a song is playing but you know I'm doing everything casual tonight so (laughs) the guests the, 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 the listeners are listening to behind the scenes as it were so anyway Yeah, and then what we'll do is after after we talk about the the all the articles, then I'm gonna go ahead and play some music, and you can talk to oh. us a little bit about that too. So uh, now, you know what I I think one of the biggest things that's gonna happen this year coming up is I want to know where the hell are my damn hoverboards? <laughs> I, that's what I want to know. I mean, everyone's gonna be talking about Back to the Future too. You know, we, oh, we don't have no 3D Jaws uh, thing happening. There was actually was, a story. <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just, no. I just thought about that. I was like, should we be on like Jaws 19 by now or something? Exactly. Is that what it was? It was like Jaws something ridiculous, like 19 or 45 or something. And yeah, I couldn't remember, but it was it was something like that because I was thinking about that the other day. And then whenever I was going to work this morning, I got the thing. I was like, I want my damn hover car. Where is my hover converted car that I can fly around in? Especially right, and that's that's actually right, and that was actually one of the questions that these writers from a um, one of a, a very popular magazine asked the producers and directors of Back to the Future too. They asked them, uh, among other things, they asked them like, you know, well, first of all, I should preface this by saying that the directors said, you know. Um, that it was never intended to be a serious film. This is a, this is an actual quote. Um, he says it was never intended to be a serious film, and he thinks a lot of what they were creating were inherently jokes of a certain kind. And he wants to point out that they would that the audience should never take them as predictions, but as things they thought would look good in a fictional film. And you know, then they went ahead and asked him, "Well, when in the hell are we getting flying cars?" And Isn't that actually, just a, a sad? I mean, if I could just. Do- 
go yeah, off man. on a tangent for a second. Isn't that just sad that, they, that he actually has to post that? I mean, that's like putting a warning label on a damn bicycle. Warning, move when used. <laughs> yeah. Or no, sh- excuse me, you know, no, no okay. duh, of course it does. So it's like, you know, there's, you know where's the Harbor cars and stuff? I don't know, where's your comments? Anyway, I'm sorry, please. Continue. <laughs> no, no, you're you're There's absolutely right. Why rant. the hell should I mean of course it's a movie. Why should anybody need to be told, guess what? It's a movie. Everybody yeah, knows well, that. You already. know what? Everybody can F off. Where's my lightsaber? All right. I mean if we're talking about hell truth, yeah. you know, how movies predicting everything, where's my lightsaber? Where's my damn Star Destroyer? Okay? <laughs> the Star Destroyer, isn't that the Hubble Space Telescope? No, I know who the Star Destroyer. I know who the Star Destroyer is. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? You ready? Miley yeah. Cyrus. Miley Cyrus. Oh. You like that oh. one? You like that oh. one? You're no. No way. I got You're a better hurting. one. I got a better one. Are you ready for this one? All right. Oh. There's a star. There's a Star Destroyer right there. All right. So. <laughs> as far as the flying cars are concerned, did you know? that there is a company called Aeromobile who have actually made a functional hovering car. Really? Yes. In fact, I'm going to link this article to our Twitter feed so that our our listeners can look at it because it's very interesting. They've got, they asked the directors and the producers of the film several questions. One of them is what we just talked about, and... Um, it, I'm sure you can hear my daughter in the background, but she's laughing at. I have absolutely no idea. I'm sure my it wife doesn't matter. Children, children operate on a wonderful plane of existence that we Don't will they? never really comprehend. Exactly. I wish I could just tap into that energy for just a second. So, but anyway, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's. Uh, where where is this? Here it is. Um. Oh, I just lost it. Oh, there it is. So yeah, it, I just I just linked you guys on Twitter a uh, list of uh, chefs out there in radio uh, land. If you go to our feed right now, which is twitter.com/emmyshiftshow, um, mm-hmm. you can look at it and it looks it shows all the uh, articles on there, all rather the questions on the article. Now, the other question is, what about the hoverboards? Well, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a, a video done, and it was later found out to be a parody video. Christopher Lloyd actually start in and it was supposed to be all all these guys trying out a hover uh, an actual hoverboard and it turned out and in fact even with tony hawk have you seen this video um i didn't see it i know which i seem to recall that something coming up about that um but i, oh, I never watched it it was pretty really? funny they yeah they they did like the special effects on it were pretty awesome it was i, I actually thought it was real well, it turns out, I think it was a few months after that happened, a company called Hendo Hoverboards came up with an actual working hoverboard, and it uses magnetic propulsion technology. Now, in order for it to work, this really doesn't work. This one doesn't work. It has to be on a certain kind of metal surface, okay? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they're, you know, uh, they haven't said whether or not these things are going to be like publicly available yet, but they at least have one working. So there's at least two things that are not publicly available, but at least they have a working concept. Now, remember when they in the movie when uh, Marty goes into his house, his future house, and all of the stuff was going on in there, like the the dehydrated food, 
and the fruit oh, coming yeah. down from. Remember that? Oh yeah, the Pizza Hut pizza in a well, like <laughs> yeah. a pop tart wrapper. Yeah, happened that I thought was amazing that they did that they got it right was the the talking to somebody on the TV. Yeah, because we have we have that we have it on Skype. Oh uh, yeah, and, so. yeah, and we even have it on. In fact, forget Skype. Anybody that has a tablet or, an, or a smartphone can talk to somebody. The other day, I couldn't. I almost fainted because I was I was at the store or something, and this kid must have been 12 years old was walking in front of me, and he had one of those little smartphones. And I'm talking about a small one. I'm not talking about a big one. And on his phone, it looked like a picture. So I thought, oh, he's just talking to somebody on the phone. You know how you can get your profile picture on your smartphone, yeah. right? So, yeah. no, he wasn't talking. No, it was an actual live person video chatting with him, video like talking to him. And Damn. I just I wonder what at, his yeah. uh, data bill is every month. Yeah, I bet. Right. Yeah, and I looked at my <laughs> wife and I was like, wow, can you imagine? I mean, that wouldn't have even – go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just laughing at it. So they're on the voice chat. I mean, I watched 30 seconds of a video, and I've hit my data cap. So <laughs> <I just> can... <laughs> Man, you got to upgrade that. <laughs> yeah, tell me about know. it. I mean, it's bad you got little kids walking with better phones than I have. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so right right now I'm going to go into um, – we've got the all these weird – these top ten weird stories of 2014. Now, I'm going to warn you. These stories are slightly about sexual reproduction. Far out. So I'm just warning you I ahead think. of time. So one of them, and these these are stories that trended. So these are not, this isn't like my idea. These are stories that trended on the internet this year. And, well, you know, I don't know if I should do this right now because it feels weird for me to talk about this. And my little girl is like right behind me. So maybe I maybe I'll hold off on this for right now. I tell you what I am gonna do. I am gonna go ahead and I am going to start playing uh let me see. I've got oh, here's a song that you uh and your band did together with Holden uh called Cookie Monster. Can you talk can you tell us a little bit about that one? How did how did that come 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 about? Oh god, I think this was two years ago. I had uh I mean of course, every music project is a learning experience for me. And um, just whenever I'd met up with Holden, I think the time this came out, I was actually in production for A Dead Day Will Dine for my uh, zombie EDM electronica album. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, as I said, like us bouncing ideas off of each other, Holden would do his, you know, he'd have a lick, and then he'd be like, hey, what you think of this? And I'd listen to it and be like, well, you know, what do you want to do with it? And he said, well, I, you know, you do something. You add this or you add something to it. And um, I'm trying to remember. I know Cookie Monster was, I mean, that was one of the first songs I had heard from him. And uh, mainly most of the stuff that I would do would be just helping him, like, with the mix down uh, as I'm trying to practice with my, you know, post-production and getting things to just sound better. And so that's, any like the compositions and stuff. I mean, that, that's that's all holding. This is, I mean, like I said, he is on a whole another wavelength than I'm on, and I could never hope to emulate that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's good stuff. 
But uh, cool. if you, well, we're you know, going to involved in it. Yeah, I mean, we're going to hear it right now. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to join in, if any anybody is live uh, on the air with us right now, which uh, it, that's a, you know, comes and goes. I, I know how busy everybody is, and most of our listeners are archived listeners, which is fine. But anybody that is listening to us live right now out there, you can go to www.blogtalkradio.com slash thegraveyardshift, and there's a chat room right now where I am its sole occupant, which is fine. I'm I'm used to being by myself, you know. I, I, I used to, get in the chat room. I'm I'm used to playing by myself, and and okay, I won't go any further with that. But anyway, speaking of reproductive <laughs> habits and trending, but anyway. Yeah. So anyway, if you guys want to do that, or you can go to our Twitter feed at twitter.com/slash/emmyshiftshow. You can do that. But uh, with no further, oh boy, she's upset. So I'm gonna go ahead and play Cookie Monster, and you'll you guys will enjoy that. When we get back. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and play you a very serious interview I had with an actual for real celebrity. And this is a big name. So we'll be back back, and I'm going to leave you guys with that. Here it is. You're listening to The Graveyard Shift, and I'm punching in.
and gentlemen, welcome back to the Graveyard Shift, the greatest talk show that has ever been, is, and ever will be. This is Emmy, your illustrious host. By the way, if I haven't mentioned it, I don't know if I need to mention it. It's December 31st, 2014. Hello. And with me on the air, I have, I don't know, I I think he's the greatest person, like, you know, ever. Jeez, I mean, I mean God, <laughs> I suck compared to him. Holy crap. I'm just, holy crap. Anyway. <laughs> it's monumental. Monumental, I mean, that's every... something I should use. I should use that. Well, you know what? Not every me... day I, I get to talk to you, so I mean, yeah, this is this is profound for me. Just, oh, I'm, that's I'm so sweet. Thank you. Thank... By the way, I, I'll tell you what, man, that music we just played, I'm not messing around. That was pretty kick-ass. Um, I've been, what was I've it called? been telling him. Yeah, I mean, well, what do you know what the reason why why he called it Cookie Monster? Because I think that's awesome. Why? <laughs> well, uh, I honestly don't know, other than the fact that, I mean, it just started. He Holden makes music because he enjoys making music. And, right. you know, it just, I mean, that was a lot of his ideas. It just, I mean, he just stands up, pulls it out of his ass, and he just sits there and makes it. And that's just his style. As I, He has an inimitable style that I can't. Like I said, I couldn't hope to mimic it. I haven't heard anybody else mimic it, and I've been just ever since I've known him, known him, I've been pushing him to do more with it because I mean everybody's musical. Everyone has a musical signature when they play. You can tell when someone's playing. You can tell where that music came from, and I mean that's just that's with Holden. He just whenever it's his style, I can recognize it. And a lot of the songs, like I said, it he would do it and just making the song and he just name it something and that's i mean to me that's part of the appeal is the fact well, that you know he doesn't keep himself yeah. so serious you know it's not like with me and you know my pompous nature whenever we come out with a song you know and i try to think of just something so grandiose in scope and i might even call it you know like the one of us you know preludio terrore and giving it all this <laughs> and, and holden just writes a song yeah. called the cookie Monks and it's badass that's awesome. and that's just I mean that's just no. Him. I mean I, I, I yeah no I I I liked it. I thought it, and let me tell you something. I cannot stand dubstep. I I I have to admit that right now. I can't stand it. It's one of the oh, worst. No, I can't stand it. But but hold on hold on. But the stuff that he does to me is un. Flipping believable. It's really well done. It is better than a lot, if not all, of the dubstep that I've ever heard. Like that Skrillex guy, I can't stand him. But <laughs> Holden kicks ass. Holden, well, if, if Holden, um, he no, no. Needs to hear that. Okay, well, let me tell you right now, Holden. I know you're listening to me, and I'm being serious. I'm not just saying this. I'm not just saying this. If you were on stage with this, whoever the hell Skrillex is. I am telling you right now, you would kick his ass in every single way for him, and there is. And I'm not just saying that. And just so all of you out there are wondering that don't know me, wonder why I would know this, let me just drop a few names of people that I have worked with over the years so you know that I know my stuff. People Ooh, like, let me, oh, I, let me get this thing for you. Hold on. <clears throat> yeah. Name drop. There you go. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, and I am. I'm about to. I'm about to. And I usually, I do not like doing this. I really don't, because I don't want anyone to think that I'm hot, hot stuff.
stuff or whatever. I mean, my wife thinks I am, but that's you know besides the point. But I work with a lot of players. Like, oh gee, let me see. Hmm. Oh, I don't know. How about who should I mention? Huh? Do 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 do. Oh, I don't know. How about Bruce Springsteen? Whoa, I've had him. Really? Yeah. Uh, yep. Long time ago. Oh, uh, let me, let me see. Who else have I worked with? Background music, now, to be fair, to be fair, I worked with one of his musicians, but he was in the room with us. So, to be fair, but he did tell me that I had a good voice. And let me see, who else did I work with? I worked with uh, Placido Domingo. I worked with oh, uh, there's a few other people that I'd rather not say their names right now. But those are oh, just on, two to give you a kind of an idea. What, Steven? Shut up. No. No. My name is not Shut Steven, up, Steven, and I will continue to talk. <laughs> God. He's, just, he's telling me stuff, and I'm telling him to shut his mouth. God. He's such oh, a well, baby. Come on. How, how old is Steven? Steven? How old are you, Steven? Holy shit, dude. Steven is 35. Oh. Oh, well, yeah. Tell him just, yeah. Yeah, see what I'm saying? He has, he's, he's young. He has he's a nothing baby. to contribute. Yeah, he has nothing to contribute. Oh, to my God. Steven, I now, will not child, tell that to Dan. I am not going to tell Dan to suck your stuff, man. Oh, oh come God. on. That was completely uncalled for. Wasn't it? <laughs> God, you're so... Dude, you're just getting... No, Steven, no. Oh, God. Oh. You don't want to know what he just did. You really don't. You just... Probably no, not. Steven... You really don't. Just trust me. You don't just. Oh, it involves a goat and a chicken and just. Oh, just. Well, that sounds like my Friday nights. We get a couple. Of, <laughs> I don't know. even want to know at this point anymore. Okay, I tell yeah, you what. This is what I'm going to do. I've got. I've got a, a surprise. I've got a surprise. I've got a big surprise. I did an interview with a very famous celebrity. I have been holding this back. I have been holding it and holding it like my poop. And I'm about, and just like my poop, I'm about to unleash it on y'all. No, I'm kidding. Oh, boy. Do, do you know who Bill Cosby is? Oh, uh, yeah, 80s kid. Oh. Of course I know who Bill Cosby is. Okay, I would hope so. Well, I did an interview with him. I'm not kidding. And I'm oh, about shit. to play it right now. Oh, Are you ready? Oh, you yes, ready? Go ahead. Okay, here we go, yep. ladies and gentlemen. With no further ado, my interview with Bill Cosby. Here we go. Mr. Cosby, thank you so much for coming on to our show. I'm so glad we could get this time to talk, just you and me, and now we can finally clear up all this mess. So uh, just tell me, how do you feel? Boy, am I glad to be back here. I'm no good on my own. I was given two old days, and I just went crazy. Okay, uh, Mr. Cosby, please, you know, let's, come on, let's get serious here. Let's just talk about these allegations, shall we? I don't know where you get these people from. Sometimes I think it's drugs. Well, they've been popping up all over, sir. I mean, you you know, what did you think would happen when you did what you did? Now your body doesn't want it, so it starts to kick it out whether you want to hold it or not, so you begin to... Sir, sir, that, that, sir, that was not appropriate at all. You're just, you're putting yourself further and further in the hole with that one, okay? Let's just stay on task, shall we? What exactly... Were you thinking back then? I mean, you know, you were with these women. What was going through your mind? I mean, you were a happily married man. Now you feel it coming. All right, I'm ready. Holding on, holding on. Going for a ride, yes. Bring it out, yes. Here it comes. 
and your muscles. No, Mr. Cosby. No, no, that's. What? What are you doing? Uh, look, look. No, no. Can can we please stop that? Let's get serious, please. I didn't come here to tell you that. Okay, well then, that's better. I uh, wanted to discuss some very serious matters. Now we're getting somewhere. Go on. Dentists. Dentists. What? Dent? What? No, no. Look, I arranged this interview so you can talk to us about what you were really up to back then in the late '60s. Now, come on. Oh. God, no. Sir, control yourself. Uh, look, just tell me at least that you use protection. Come automatically, the muscles tighten and push. <sighs> I'll just I'll pretend I didn't hear that. So I guess we can just forget the question of whether or not you're guilty. What have you got to say for yourself? Oh, God. Stop it. Dear God, that's disgusting. Look, can, what, look what, would you just, what would you say to these people if you saw them today? Oh, my God. This interview has gone to poop. God. Okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. That's it. No more. Goodbye. <laughs> there, there you go. Was Dude, that, that was... Now, I, I, I mean, I don't know what to say anymore. I mean, he would not keep a straight face during the whole interview. It was Everything was poop and sex. Oh, God. Dude, that was... <laughs> you like that, huh? Oh, God. That was great. Oh, I'm please, so glad God, you liked it. To... Yeah, I will be scout. Pardon the uh, the terminology here, but I will be searching through your anal's, and uh, I'll be finding that so I can have a copy for myself. <laughs> I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on the on the on our Facebook page so everybody. I actually shared it a while back, but I, I think it just got lost in the news feed, so I just decided to bust out with it tonight. But um, now <laughs> the next the next interview I will be playing right now. Is a real is a, is a real one. This one's a real serious one for real, and it's actually the interview between myself and Mr. Frank Joseph, where we talk about Atlantis. Now, um, I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go on a little bit of a break, and then when we get back, um, I'm gonna go ahead and play it for you. And uh, now, Dan, this is gonna be a pretty long interview, um, so. It, I, what I was gonna do is, uh, if you have anything you want to say to everybody before before we before we let you loose and to go party and do whatever, uh, now's mm -hmm. your chance. So if you want to tell well, anybody I, anything, you know, tell anyone off or you know, like you know, whatever, go for it. No, I mean I I really appreciate it. As uh, I mean, yeah, you said it's gonna be long. I've actually got to go. My brother, who uh, did the vocals in the uh, Throne of Anguish. Uh, Defiant Gifts of Torment, and then he also is the voice of Craven. I mean, you'll know him when you hear him anyway. He's got a show tonight, so we're fixing to head up to the bar and check their show out. But uh, no, just thanks, Emmy. Thank you very much for uh, having us on. I mean, this Anytime now. right here beside me, and he's just he is he's just overjoyed. I mean, he's just sitting there, keeps <laughs> poking me in the shoulder, telling me thank you, telling me thank you. So you have Holden's profound thanks. For <laughs> well, I, I you—it's a big absolutely. thing for you. Us. Tell him I said yeah. He's very welcome. Now, tell us more about the show, though. What maybe somebody's on the air that wants to go out there that is in that area? Tell us where, where's the where's the bar and what where where is what time? Oh well, it's uh, right at the corner of BFE in the middle of it. No, it's a uh, in uh, South Carolina CSRA in the uh, Aiken. It's called Playoffs. And uh, the band playing is Wits End. That's uh, it's a cover band, 
and they have uh, just several musicians from you know several local bands who just pull together and they just you know they like doing cover songs and stuff. So okay, gotta go. Fantastic. Of course, my brother's there, so I'm going to support. Awesome, go for it, man. And, all right, so ladies and gentlemen, you heard that. If you're in the area, if you want to go check them out, and if you happen to see anybody, just let them know that I sent you. And uh, if not, oh well. But um, I want to thank Dan for you know uh, get, you know for the time that he took and and coming on tonight and and thank Holden for letting us uh, play that music. I mean that was I was I, I love it. I'm still gonna play some tonight if I if I can get it in. But um, Dan, I want to no, thank, thank you guys. You so much. Thank, yeah, absolutely. You guys have a good night and uh, be you safe do, out man. there. All right, man. Look, if I don't talk to you later on, you have a happy New Year. All right, dude. You too, buddy. You too. Happy New Year to you and your you and yours. Okay. All right, man. We'll see you later. Yep. See you later, bud. All right, ladies and gentlemen. So that was Dan Edenfield of Throne of Anguish fame. Great guys. I'm sure you can tell for yourself. And uh, without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and play the interview between myself and Mr. Frank Joseph. I will enjoy it. It's my little kind of post-Christmas present to all of you. And after that, we'll be uh, logging off for the night. So here it is, my interview with Mr. Frank Joseph. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here on the air with the illustrious Frank Joseph, the author of a chapter in Lost Secrets of the Gods, in which he writes about Plato's Atlantis, fact or fiction. Now, Frank has authored more books about the lost civilization of Atlantis than any other writer in history. His complete published output includes an, a whopping 26 titles and as many foreign editions. He was the editor-in-chief of Ancient American, a popular science magazine from its inception in 1993, until his retirement 14 years later. During his career as a staff reporter for other periodicals, Joseph interviewed, wow, Secretary of State John Kerry, Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura, big fan, test pilot Chuck Yeager, holy cow, oh my God, soprano Sumi, oh my God, I'm going to mess this up, Sumi Joe, symphonic conductor Sir George Salty, and actors Peter Ustinov, Vincent Price, and Shirley MacLaine. Today, he is a feature writer for Atlantis Rising, as well as Australia's Nexus and New Dawn. And uh, apparently, he is also an avid scuba diver. Frank, how's it going today, buddy? Oh, pretty good. Thanks for letting me be on your show. I look forward to it. That's wonderful. I'll tell you what, it's a great honor. You've been uh, quite busy, and I see that you've been uh, you've worked for quite a few people, many of whom I've longed to meet myself, uh, especially Chuck Yeager. Um, I've uh -oh. tried... Oh my God! I, it would be the honor of a lifetime for me to speak with him. Um, uh -huh. I've always been a big fan of, of aviation, and uh, um, to speak with the man that you know uh, broke the sound know, was, barrier. Yeah, broke the sound barrier. Thank you. You said it before I did. Thank you. Uh, I would have loved that. So uh, now I'm I'm in. I'm very curious about when you interviewed John Kerry. Now was he? What what exactly? I know this isn't what what you wrote about him. I'm just just a little tiny little curiosity here. What was he doing when you were interviewing him? What, what in what capacity? At that time, uh, this is about uh, oh, I guess about uh, six or seven years ago. I was working for a, a St. Paul newspaper called Asian Pages, uh, which dealt primarily with Asian cultures of all kinds. And at that time, uh, John Kerry was running for president of the United States against George Bush. He was here giving a number of presentations in the Twin Cities, and I had the opportunity to uh, meet with him. Uh, it was supposed to be a 10-minute interview, and it turned into a 40-minute interview. So I wow. guess it was kind of interesting for both sides. I asked him a lot of hard questions, and uh, I was pretty impressed with him. I thought it was uh, 
interesting uh, public figure. I've known yeah, I've uh, heard, several. You know. Yeah, I mean, I've heard um, that's a, that's not the first time I've heard that. I've heard several people say that. You know, he's very unassuming. When you first meet him, you think that he's not gonna that he's just gonna be two dimensional, but he ends up being a lot more than that. And um, I mean, Shirley MacLaine, wow, that's another one. Vincent Price, I would have loved mm-hmm. to have interviewed. You know, wow, that's pretty amazing. So you've got quite a bit of a of a of a rapport here, a reputation rather. So I forgot I to was, mention Peter Ustinov too. <laughs> I, you know what? I can't believe I didn't say that. And that's a, one of my absolute all-time favorite actors, him and Vincent Price. Um, Peter Ustinov was—he's the legend. What? I, I don't even know how much I can, much more I can say that that. I mean, he's just an amazing actor. So now, I, I mean, really, this kind of really kind of gets you perfectly in place to write this because. You really, you know, to write about Plato in Atlantis, you need to be somebody very educated. You need to be someone who's uh, a student of history, someone who knows how to maneuver through the turbulent waters of, you know, of well, of history, not to repeat myself. And I think I think that makes you the perfect fit. Now, you know, I I have to tell you, I'm one, I am a huge, 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 huge fan of anything having to do with Atlantis. And you've heard it mentioned a million times in every kind of different medium. And, you know, everyone has their own take on who did, who started it, who started the story. So let me ask you this. Did Plato actually invent the story of Atlantis or was it mentioned before that? Well, uh, his source that he represents and his two dialogues, the Critias and the Timaeus, are the earliest complete versions that we have. However, he was by no means the first person to write about the lost civilization of Atlantis. We can go back much further into the Book of the Dead by the Egyptian scribe Ani, and in there he talks about a place called Etalenti. It's also Hmm. referred to as Sekhret Aru. We have to understand that the name Atlantis is a Greek word, actually the original Greek is Atlantikos, and that this civilization went under various names as it passed through the cultures of other peoples that it affected, so it was known by different names under different cultures. But the earliest known uh, version of the story of Atlantis probably goes back uh, to Egyptian times, and certainly it's mentioned by cultures on both sides of the Atlantic long before Plato. And the Mayas referred to it as Patutlan. The Aztecs referred to it as Atslan. So there are many different cultures that were familiar with Atlantis under the various names under which it was known long before Plato. Plato, a matter of fact, in his own uh, account, says that he obtained it from Solon. Solon was the great Greek lawgiver. He is known as the first legislature in history. Mm-hmm. And he heard the story about 150 years before Plato was born. That's interesting. Now, how do we know that all of these other references that you were mentioning, how do we know it's of the... I mean, granted, I know some of them do sound similar to the word Atlantis, but how about the other ones that, that may not sound the same? And and even the ones that are similar, we you know, how do we know they are that same, you know, place? Do they, do they offer the same descriptions or do they... I mean, how do we know that? 
Yes, as a matter of fact, they do on both sides of the Atlantic. The uh, traditions of Atlantis in the West, in the Near East, Egypt, and Western Europe, they refer to a large island in the Atlantic Ocean just outside of the Straits of Gibraltar. They refer to it in Greece as the Pillars of Hercules. Right, I was just going to say, And this yeah. great civilization arose uh, uh, early on in human history. It was the first modern civilization. That's what gives Atlantis its significance. It represents the step that human beings took from savagery to civilization. They created the first modern high society, not that dissimilar from our own. What I mean by that is a, it was a literate society, had great technology, organization of labor, institutionalized, institutionalized religion, and so forth. And these various cultures, like Atlanta or Atlantis, they talk about this great island civilization uh, rising to enormous imperial power just outside the Straits of Gibraltar, then undergoing a series of natural catastrophes that result in its total annihilation. On the other side of the world, when the Mayas talked about Patutlan or the Aztecs talked, Aztecs talked about Atslan, they refer to it in exactly the same way, only their position is looking eastward across the Atlantic, i give you one example of that. In the Book of the Dead, where we read about Sekhret Aru, uh, it is described as the forerunner of Egyptian civilization. And Sekhret Aru means field of reeds. And that refers mm. to the reed pen. Reeds were used as a writing utensil. So if you had okay. uh, mastery over this writing utensil, you were a literate, civilized person. A whole field of reeds represented a place of great wisdom. On the other side of the world, the Aztecs referred to Atslan under the exact same title, Field of Reeds. And the reed represented the same status for a literate person that it did in ancient Egypt. So here you have two totally disconnected civilizations in the Nile Valley on one side of the world and in the Valley of Mexico on the other, and they both mm -hmm. refer to the mainspring of their own civilizations being the field of reeds. I don't know really how more specific one can possibly get. Sacred Aru or Aztlan, these are titles for this great uh, culture that arose in the mid-Atlantic, which oh, sounded probably yeah. something like Atlantis. Right, and you know, that's obviously not the first time we've seen connections between the civilizations of the West and the East. We've seen, you know, depictions of dragons. We've seen even the gods that were described in their... Um, you know, belief systems are very similar, and it's, even their origins were similar. Now, I I don't know if if you ran into this in your research. I'm sure you did because you're very thorough. Um, I uh, remember in the oh boy, the Hindu book, one of the Hindu books that they they talk about a floating island, and in fact, it was one of the inspirations with um oh boy with Discland. Oh, the Mahabharata. Yes, that's the that's one. That's the one. Mahabharata. And, and, uh -huh. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, you know, they talk about how this floating island was basically full of enlightened people, and uh, it had, like, all this, you know, high-tech stuff, and the people were, you know, basically the, the island went all over the world, and then sometimes the people from that island would disembark on different, you know, other lands, and, you know, you can get from that what you will, you know, uh, <laughs> If that were the truth, oh, and actually, in fact, um, they were saying that this island was in the back of a turtle, like a giant, giant turtle. I don't know if you if you if you heard about that, but 
I always felt whenever I heard that story, it always reminded me of Atlantis. And I thought, wow, you know, I don't know if I believe that it was, a, you know, in the back of a giant turtle, but maybe if this is the same island that is thought of to be Atlantis and it was a floating island, it would make sense and it would it would answer the uh, the queries of why the Incans or the Mayans rather uh, would know of this island because you know obviously they didn't have the, the any kind of seafaring vessels to journey as far as the Straits of Gibraltar. Now let me ask you this: Do you think that Atlantis, the the story rather, has anything to do with? the um the lost world mythos that um uh Jules Verne brought back in the 19th century do you think that has anything to do with that do you think he was maybe trying to you know kind of hint at something there well it's kind of interesting uh Jules Verne was kind of this visionary mystical guy wasn't he it's amazing the things that he foresaw and he mentions Atlantis in two of his novels one of them uh, is the lost world uh, no, it's not. I'm sorry. Uh, it's the journey to the center of the earth. That is the one that he mentions, Atlantis, and not the lost world. Uh, it's been quite a few years since I've read his novels. I usually I don't read much fiction these days anymore, but I do <laughs> remember reading Jules Verne where he talks about Atlantis as being um, uh, journey in journey to the center of the earth, where they find some remnants of lost Atlantis. It's kind of cool. And then in his other book, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, um, the, uh, the doctor, I forgot his name, who was captured, and Captain Nemo are walking in their underwater suits at the bottom of the sea, and they come across this uh, remnants of a sunken civilization in lost right. city. And uh, that's where Captain Nemo writes in the silt underwater that this is, he writes Atlantis there. So that's, these are, uh, I think, interesting indications of how this legend, and it's more than a legend, has really sunk a deep hook into the consciousness of Western man for a very long time. And um, I think there are many reasons for that, why it's still fascinating today, and the chief one being that we have heard, everyone has heard about Atlantis, they're familiar with that word, but they don't really know what it means or its significance. And its real importance, as I said, is the first place where our species made that transition from rather low-level society to something much greater, what we are today. And I think that's the real importance of studying this lost civilization. And I'm, I'm doing more than writing about it. I'm getting rather uh, fed up with writing about it, quite honestly. I've written too many books about it, and now I'm, I'm anxious to go actually look for it. The technology exists today, as it never has before. Really? And so um, I'm, I'm busily trying to organize a, a true scientific, university-trained expedition to where I think it might be and turn our technocrats loose and, loose and see if they can find something. And that's Well, that's well now that's... That's rather ambitious. I mean, there's been quite a few um, intrepid explorers and archaeologists already trying to look for it, and they haven't had much luck. Or, Well, I shouldn't say they haven't had much luck. They've found some things that might point to it and may not, but nothing really solid, nothing concrete. I mean, there's been that 
that one huge uh, walkway or whatever you want to call it that's off the coast of Cuba. And then there's another something that was discovered near England and something else that was discovered near Greece. And, you know, if you believe what you, what you hear on the, on the different, um, you know, cryptid um, news sites, there's this huge whole underwater civilization that's off the coast of Japan that might be something uh, having to do with Atlantis, or at least that's what they think. But, I mean, that's pretty ambitious of you to do that. You know, I mean, if you do, I mean, if you if you find something, that would be absolutely just history. I mean, and and really, you know, I don't think that's very far from from happening because look at what happened with with the city of Troy. You know, nobody ever thought that was going to be discovered, and and look at what they did. They discovered it. You know, they they found Troy. You know, so that's that. that I think it can happen absolutely now. Now, let me ask you this, you know, um, speaking of, you know, the, the society we live in and everything, and I mean, do you think that, would, do you think that Atlantis was Plato's dramatization of his ideal society? Or, I mean, because that's been one, a, a very, uh, that's been like a topic of, of contention among different um, philosophical circles. No, absolutely not. That's one of the put-downs on the whole story of Atlantis, that Plato just was trying to dream up his ideal society and made up Atlantis. Well, the only people that can say such a thing are either lying or else they're ignorant. <laughs> and they're, that kind of an attitude is only for people that are unfamiliar with Plato's work. Plato's ideal society was laid out in detail in his Republic. This is the society okay. that he clearly envisions as the ideal way to go. Right, right. Atlantis is the exact opposite. We have to understand that Plato did not all of a sudden switch from being a philosopher to a historian. He cited Atlantis specifically in those two dialogues that I mentioned, the Timaeus and the Critias, because in those dialogues, Plato was examining why societies, why civilizations always self-destruct. Why is it that they follow the same patterns that human individual human existence goes through? A human being is born, goes through a period of youth, maturity, prosperity, decline, and death. The same cycle is observed in every civilization before and after Plato. And this is what Plato was examining. And in order to il illustrate this examination, he needed a truthful historical example, and that was Atlantis, which mm -hmm. also went through the same period of growth, greatness, maturity, decline, and destruction. And that's why he writes about Atlantis, not to switch from being a philosopher to a historian, but to use a historical example to illustrate just what he's talking about. So okay. Atlantis is by no means his ideal society. If anything, it is a dystopia. It's a society that begins well, but unravels and destroys itself. Hmm. So, I mean, and, and, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Obviously I'm not, I'm not one of the people that subscribe to these theories, but uh, so you don't, you don't think that Plato was using the allegorical nature that he normally uses in his work. I mean, you remember the cave, you remember also when, you know, during in the Republic as well, um, when he, he does use allegory to prove some points. So you don't think that he would be using Atlantis as an allegory? No, no, that's not, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying oh. in fact that he was using Atlantis as an allegory. Okay. He's using Atlantis as an allegory of a civilization that goes through the same cycles that individual human beings do and self-destructs. 
he was trying to show that the society of his own time was also in crisis, and why was it in crisis, and where was it going to lead? And what he said is that the Atlanteans basically made two fundamental errors. And the first fundamental error was that they began to sin against those very natural laws that brought their high civilization into existence. And number two, they embraced technology as a god. Mm. He believes, he states that technology, in effect he says, technology makes a wonderful servant but a very cruel deity. And this was what he believed was also happening in his Greek society. What he meant by that was there's nothing fundamentally wrong with technology. What is fundamentally wrong with technology is the human attitude towards it. In other words, if you feel that your technology has reached such high levels and will reach even higher levels in the future that it excuses all moral behavior, then that society is doomed. And that is basically what... Plato was telling, and he still preaches in his dialogues. And that's why Atlantis was important to him, and that's why he had to affirm its factual basis. He had to have a historical example to uh, show what he was talking about. Right, and obviously at that time, people would have known of the story of Atlantis. They would have understood what he was referring to. They would have known how to, you know, in a way, apply it to their lives. And really... That again just just really, you know, highlights and amplifies why the story of Atlantis is so important in our lives today. I mean, look at where we are. You're talking about technology being a god. Um, try to pry an iPad or an iPhone away from anybody that you see on the street and see what happens. You know, so I mean, we're getting yeah, I mean, exactly. We're getting pretty close to it. I mean, we've got it in our cars. We've got it. Heck, look at the Oculus Rift. You know. We're pretty. Well, I think what Plato would have uh, criticized about the technological levels that we have in America now is that one of the sad aspects of it is that it has diluted human relationships, and it has also now uh, is substituting virtual reality for reality itself. And I think that Plato would define this as a dangerous drift away from our humanity. When technology is at our service. Uh, when it highlights our natural greatness and helps us to achieve wonderful things, there's nothing wrong with it. That's wonderful. That, that's great. Materialism is fine and technology is fine. But as the Greeks said, and of course it was a Greek, everything in moderation. Hmm. That's what I think uh, was really concerning the Greeks as well. The Greeks during his time in classical, in the classical period, were among the was the highest civilization on earth. There was nothing more technologically advanced or materially prosperous than was the Athens of the 4th century B.C. And yet there were uh, indications that uh, this condition would not last, and that's what Plato is, is bringing out. What mistakes were the Greeks making that their predecessors in Atlantis had made? And uh, that's why his work is so eternal, and that's why we still defer to Plato for the high ethics that have guided us for the past 23 centuries. Yeah, I mean, I, I heartily agree. And I mean, and as far as how it was destroyed, that is one of the most mysterious and most highly debated subjects in this particular topic. I mean, we all know the story that it was destroyed in one night, and one day, I think it was one one night, it just was swallowed up by the sea. And to this day, no one has really... I mean, they can come up with speculation, but I'm like, what? why... How do you think that happened? What do you think must have happened for? I mean, or, or do you think it really was one, just one night? It just went, got sucked up. I mean, how do you think that actually occurred? 
Well, one of the most uh, enlightening um, symposiums that was ever held on this subject occurred in uh, Oxford, England, excuse me, Cambridge, England, in 1997. It was at that time that there was a, a conference held of leading experts, authorities, scientific authorities from all over the world to try to answer one question. Why is it that the Bronze Age ended so abruptly? Hmm. The Bronze Age lasted from about 3000 B.C. to 1200 B.C. Mm -hmm. And during that time, all the great high civilizations of Egypt and Assyria and Troy and all the rest rose. And then literally overnight, those civilizations fell. There was no indication of decline. They just stopped. And to summarize as briefly, as succinctly as possible, the symposium scientists came to a consensus opinion that there was a natural catastrophe that ravaged the northern hemisphere at this time, right around 1200 B.C., mm. and that this great natural catastrophe that took place was also part of the Atlantean cataclysm. Mm. Now, they did not mention Atlantis directly um, because it's such a controversial name. It's the right. A-word. But nonetheless, <laughs> they were able to show that Atlantis was part of these other civilizations which also collapsed at that time. We know, for example, that in 1200 B.C., the British Isles were virtually depopulated of all life, not just human life. We also know that at that exact same time, the entire black forest of southern Germany was incinerated. Mm -hmm. We know that great civil, uh, cities, capitals, like the capital of the Hittite Empire, Hattusas, was burned from end to end, and yet there's no indication of uh, military operations at that time. We also know that there was major, there were major eruptions, like Mount St. Helens was in major eruption at the same time. So there was a major uh, catastrophic upheaval that took place mm. that overturned many great civilizations and dramatically ended the Bronze Age around 1200 B.C. and for the next 300 to five hundred years, the world went into a dark age in which the light of civilization dimmed and almost went out. And it wasn't right. until uh, the rise of classical Greece, maybe around 700 or 750, 800 B.C. at the very earliest, that the civilization began to pull itself together again. Right, and I, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, wasn't also the Library of Alexandria destroyed around that period of time? Like in that no, great, that came much that, later. It came later, uh, that, okay. That was done not by natural catastrophe, by but man. by human catastrophe. Mm. Uh, that took place uh, at the close of the Greco-Roman period, quite okay. a thousand years later. Now, none of this, though, is to explain. This is entirely theoretical. You're absolutely right. We know a lot about Atlantis. We know a lot of details about her. But the very nature of the destruction, we're kind of closing in on it. This symposium that was held in Cambridge, England, I think, adds a lot to it. But then we have uh, the disturbing uh, characterization by uh, Edgar Cayce, who was the foremost psychic of the 20th century, right. in which he said that the Atlanteans uh, used or rather abused their technology to such an extent that they committed social suicide. What he claims is that the 
high technology operated by the Atlanteans was used in their mining. They based their great wealth on their monopoly of the copper trade. Now, this figures in very perfectly with not only Plato's description of the Atlanteans as very wealthy men because of their monopoly of the copper trade, but also on the copper mining that took place across the Upper Peninsula of uh, Michigan in the Great Lakes area at this very same time. Mm. And the Atlanteans, according to Edgar Cayce, uh, used their technology for mining to such an extent that it caused all kinds of, uh, it interfaced and uh, caused difficulties with the natural forces within the earth, which backfired on them and destroyed the island kingdom of Atlantis in a very short time. Right. Now, of course, not everyone accepts this. This is the utterances of a psychic, hmm. and uh, that doesn't go down well, of course, with mainstream archaeologists. But nonetheless, Casey had a very uh, excellent record oh, yeah. determining uh, things from the past that did not come to light until many years after his death. One of the things that Casey mentioned, for example, is he said that the Nile River flowed at one time all the way across the Sahara Desert and emptied out into the Atlantic at Morocco. Right, now, right. To make a statement like that in the 1930s or 40s was utterly ridiculous. And it was completely contrary to everything that was known about North African geology. And yet, when Landstat photographs and surveys were made from space, of the Sahara in beginning in the late 1960s. This mm -hmm. is, of course, long after Casey's death in 1945. Right, right. It was determined that, in fact, many hundreds of thousands of years ago, the Nile River flowed just exactly as Casey said across the Sahara and emptied out into what is now Morocco. Now, for someone to have come up with this information at a time when mainstream geology was totally against such a concept is quite uh, something. And this is only one of the points that Casey made. So when a man is able to make statements like this, which are verified sometimes decades after his death, then what he had to say about Atlantis should at least give us pause and consideration. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, and you're right. There, there were many times, that's only one example, there were many examples that he was proven to be correct, and it's a shame that he wasn't alive to see it happen. But, um, you know, and often that's what happens with these things. I mean, uh, even in the field of cryptozoology, many of my um, my colleagues, in fact, one of the authors of another section of the book that you wrote, were writing in, um, Nick Redfern, who's a very good oh, friend yeah. of the show. Yeah, and, and Nick is awesome and, and everything. We, we've had him on the show a couple of times. And, you know, he, you know, him and I have talked about many times where – there have been creatures that have been thought to have been extinct or even just mythical creatures, you know, like, yeah. um, oh, boy, the... Uh, <laughs> the coelacanth is one of the most... Yes, thank you. Parts. The coelac... That's the... Exa wow, you must be psychic. Is that, is, is, that is the animal I was thinking <laughs> well, that's of. that's the real famous example. <laughs> well, like right. Ivor Sanderson was this great uh, cryptozoologist back right. in the 40s and the 50s, and he really made quite a name for himself because he had such a, a wonderful academic background. But many of the things that he talked about were totally unacceptable to his colleagues, um, and uh, only long after the man's death are now some of these things coming to, coming to pass. Right, right, exactly. Uh, now I'm going to ask you something a little bit out there, and I'm curious what you think about this. Many of my many of the fans of the show are very big into 
um, you know, the ancient aliens theory and how, you know, maybe the aliens were responsible for a lot of things that happened in this world that we live in. And um, <laughs> and I'm curious as to what your uh, what your thoughts are on the Anunnaki uh, supposed race of, of beings having anything to do with Atlantis or even having any connection with Atlantis whatsoever. Do you even think that's a possibility? Because I know the fans are going to ask this. Well, not... The only indication I've seen in all my years of research on Atlantis, and I've been at this now since uh, 1980, so Holy cow. I've been at it a long time, and I've traveled around the world, and I've kept an open mind. I've tried to be a true scientist. A scientist isn't just someone who graduates from school and has a degree. A scientist is anyone who applies the scientific method. But you have to keep everything on the table. Many times I've seen evidence that I thought was ridiculous and wanted to just uh, discard entirely. And then maybe years later I'd find something that would inflect positively on that controversial evidence. So as a true scientist, I try to keep an open mind on everything. I don't discount anything. As someone once said, this world is not as strange as we can imagine. It's far stranger than we can ever imagine anything. Well. Right, and remember so, what Shakespeare said, you know? Remember that, you yeah, know, there are more things in heaven and earth. <laughs> than are dreamt of in our Right, that, right. Correct. Yeah, that's one of my, my great criticisms, as a matter of fact, of modern American science, or scientists, rather, not science, uh, is that uh, they are far too judgmental, and they think that there's certain evidence that should be completely discarded mm. uh, rather than keeping an open mind. Well, in any regards, to answer your question, I must tell you that, the, in, in all honesty, honesty, the only indication I've ever seen of a possible uh, extraterrestrial uh, connection with Atlantis was, again, through Edgar Cayce. He talks about this great crystal that the Atlanteans had. Uh, they were masters of crystal technology. Well, so are right. we ever here in Silicon Valley. I mean, Right, uh, there you go. Uh, some people say, oh, gosh, you know, how can we believe that the Atlanteans had all this magic crystal? Material. Well, that's what our whole 21st century uh, exactly. Is so it's not that bizarre, is it? Nope. Um, but he does mention that there was this one particular stone called the Tuai Stone, uh, which he refers to. And that's an Atlantean word. We're told it's Tuai, and it means the fire stone, the stone of fire. He sometimes hmm. refers to it as the stone of the destiny. And this stone was capable of uh, transducing, as it were, all kinds of energy. And Casey says that one of the uh, aspects of this two-eye stone, or the fire stone, was to uh, establish uh, contact with um, beings uh, elsewhere, uh, intelligences uh, beyond the Earth. I'm paraphrasing exactly. I don't know the exact quote, but it's in uh, one of Edgar Casey's life readings. And that's all he says. His life readings, I should clarify for listeners, were these um, he would be uh, in, go into a, a trance state. Edgar right. Cayce would go into a deep sleep, and then um, he would talk about uh, problems that one of his clients uh, was uh, experiencing at the time. And then when he awoke, he had no recollection of what he said. And during one of these life readings, he talked about the two-eye stone being a also a, a communication device of some kind with intelligences beyond the earth. Wow. 
that's uh, pretty interesting. That's mm. all I've been able to find. I should clarify uh, for our listeners also about Anunnaki, what the Anunnaki means. And that is that there's been a terrible mistake with that. The Anunnaki are described in the Sumerian epic called the Epic of Gilgamesh. Right, right. Man, Gilgamesh you're good. Gilgamesh <laughs> was this, this great uh, Hercules type of hero. It's a wonderful work. Some people consider it the very first novel. It goes right. back to goes back to the 4th millennium B.C. The version mm-hmm. we have is a Babylonian version, uh, which goes back to maybe about 4,000 years ago, which is pretty terrific in itself. But its roots are, the story was no doubt known and repeated in the 4th millennium B.C., pretty terrific. And yeah. there is where the Anunnaki are earliest mentioned. And the Anunnaki, the literal translation of that name means torchbearer bearer of torch. A torch bearer is someone who brings light into darkness. It's also associated with the bringer of civilization. Mm-hmm. But the Anunnaki, as described in the Epic of Gilgamesh, have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with extraterrestrials, I'm sorry to tell you. The Anunnaki are described as poetical metaphors for this volcano that's described. It's described as erupting ferociously, and it's something that Gilgamesh has to deal with. Right. And the flames that come out of this volcano are described as Anunnaki, uh, as uh, torchbearers. So it's used as as a poetical metaphor. Now, you can take the word Anunnaki and change it into such a way, legitimately, where it can represent some representatives of some high culture who are bringing enlightenment to a less illuminated culture, a less advanced culture. And that's really as far as you can go. There is no indication that the Anunnaki, as the Sumerians referred to them, uh, were ever involved with extraterrestrials. Right. Now, this isn't the takeaway from the work of Zachariah Sitchin, who was kind enough to uh, write a foreword for an early book of mine, The Destruction of Atlantis. Um, And I certainly am not a scholar of the Sumerian language. He was a scholar. He was not a a university-trained scholar, however. He was self-educated. That's not to take away from him. But as far as I am able to understand, uh, I don't see any extraterrestrial connection between the Anunnaki, if you look at the original sources, I could not find any. As a matter of fact, mm. years ago when I first uh, read about uh, Zachariah Sitchin's work in this regard, I was very anxious to see if I could find that. I couldn't. doesn't mean it's not there. Right. I don't mean to be judgmental or final on it. I'm just telling you that as far as I am able to see, the only connection between Atlantis and anything extraterrestrial is mentioned in that one life reading by Edgar Cayce. And right. I, and, discount any of that at all. That's not been the main focus of my work, however. My main focus is trying to know the truth. I want to know what really happened. And I believe that Atlantis was the first modern civilization. It was an empire. It did have great colonies in the Americas. It was the great power, superpower of its day for a long time. They achieved greatness in terms of technology and culture. They became overindulgent and I believe that um, they were involved somehow in their own undoing. That seems to be clear. And uh, I also believe that the ruins of this civilization will be found someday. They haven't been found so far, 
for two reasons. The first and most important reason is nobody's been looking in the right place, which is kind of an amazing thing because Plato tells us a pretty good idea where it was, which is just outside the Straits of Gibraltar. Instead, people are looking in Bimini, the eastern Mediterranean, Japan, and so on. They're finding interesting things, but they're not finding Atlantis. And the other reason why Atlantis has not been found so far is because the technology to find the lost civilization has only now just come into existence, and only partially, not the final technology. The technology that's necessary must look not just beneath the water, beneath the surface of the sea, but must also look beneath yards and meters of silt and mud, because the deposition that's been taking place in the mid-Atlantic for the past 3,000 and more years has been prodigious. So anybody that thinks they can just get into a submarine look outside the portal and there is Atlantis has another thing coming mm. because we need the instrumentation, the electronic instrumentation like low frequency sonar, sub-bottom profilers, magnetometers and all the rest to look not just at the, on the bottom of the sea but what is now beneath the bottom of the sea and that's what I'm doing, that's the kind of expedition that I'm putting together slowly and carefully, university trained people on this high-tech equipment which will be just uh, powerful enough, hopefully, to find something. Well, and, and we certainly, yeah, and we certainly hope you do find it, Frank. I mean, that would be an absolutely, and, I, and and not to repeat myself, but that would be an epic, epic chapter in history. And what a what a thing to put your name next to, you know, the discovery. Well, I don't really. I'm interested in putting my name next to it. I'm not doing really. The, the only thing I'm doing is I'm pointing this equipment in the right direction. The real heroes of this are going to be the university-trained operators and the designers of this equipment. That's mm -hmm. what's going to reveal Atlantis. I'm just pointing them and saying, well, I think it's there. I could be wrong. I could be, I admit I could be completely wrong. Our expedition will be a complete failure. That's most expeditions are. But I think we should also give it a chance. And uh, Absolutely. there is strong indication that both the Soviet Navy and the U.S. Navy found remnants of Atlantis way back in the 1960s, and I'm following up on their discovery. So, well, that uh, that should be interesting to hopefully one day, you know, um, continue that, and I, I hope, you know, when it, when you do get to that point, uh, we hope to bring you back on so you can discuss it. Um, absolutely. Now, I, we hope to do that um, possibly next year or the year after. I'm thinking oh, that would be more wonderful. like 2016. Oh, it's a date then. I'll, I'll make sure to to keep in touch with you because I, I would definitely be interested in that. Now, um, I know that a year and a half or two years. We've already got most of the equipment and the operators together, and we're involved now in fundraising. It's not that huge amount of money, but that's what we're in the early stages of now. And when that happens, we will go. Fantastic. Well, you know, we're we're running out of time here, Frank. But I wanted to kind of piggyback a little bit um, before you go. <laughs> I have to admit, I wanted to ask you about your encounter with Vincent Price and Peter Ustinov, if that's all right. I know it's not about sure. Atlantis, but yeah. uh, I was curious, what, what exactly did you guys, what did, what did you and Mr. Price discuss? Art. Oh, I, attended awesome. his, uh, I attended one of his art shows in the Prudential Building Plaza in Chicago, Illinois, some years ago, and uh, we had a a discussion, more like an argument, actually. <laughs> and I wasn't too taken with some of the art that he had on display there, but uh, he was very gracious and open-minded. I was uh, actually an arrogant uh, punk, as I look back on it now. I should have uh, behaved more respectfully towards this man. 
but nonetheless, uh, we had a great uh, conversation. We talked about art. As far as Peter Ustinov is concerned, I met him far more recently. I met him about maybe ooh, four or five years before his death. Uh, again in Chicago, as it turns out, uh, that was at the uh, uh, the largest book fair in North America. It's an annual affair, and both he and I were signing our books at that time. And matter of fact, he just happened to be next to me at that time. I didn't interview him for a newspaper or anything, and so I was uh, lucky enough to uh, meet up with him. And we talked about Atlantis, believe it or not. <laughs> wow, really? That's interesting. Yes, I wonder we what did. He, yes, we did. I would have loved to have picked his brain on that one. That yeah, must have well, been he was interested in it and, and uh, thought it was plausible. He, it was interesting. The more you, you meet um, really capable people like Peter Usnoff and so forth, admittedly he's not a university-trained scientist, but he was certainly a very brilliant uh, creature, and uh, he thought that the possibilities for it were uh, very persuasive and was, was a strong believer in it, actually. <laughs> well, that's amazing. That's <laughs> awesome. That it, it should be sought for. And uh, so that was, and he wasn't just being patronizing or anything. I thought that he was really a Renaissance man. Good Lord, yeah, man. he was just an actor. You know, he was a producer and uh, author, and you know, like mm-hmm. his movie Billy Budd. You know, he did the, the whole thing for that, and it's just uh, yeah, he was an really, amazing, very, amazing. Uh, it really, well, I think you really can unhesitatingly refer to him as a genius because he did so many things well, not just one thing. And uh, I agree great. with that. I I agree with that absolutely. Well, listen, Frank, I want to thank you so much for for your, all your time and. And and I mean this is an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And now if, if for the okay, ladies and gentlemen, so that was it for the Frank Joseph uh, interview. I hope you all enjoyed it. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I also want to thank uh, Dan Annenfield, Holden uh, Strenes, and uh, Ricky Mosher for allowing us to play their great music. And I want to thank all of you Shifties for being our fans over this year. Uh, season five is going to be awesome, guys. So be please stay tuned. BlogTalkRadio.com slash The Graveyard Shift and Twitter.com slash Emmy Shift Show. I also want to thank my wife, Amy, for putting up with me uh, during this uh, show and also during the entire year and all of our, our 12 years together. We've been married 12 years now. So as of December 21st, the 2002, and this year was the 12th year. So I love you, honey. Happy anniversary. Uh, well, post-anniversary. It's, no, it's the very first. So anyway, guys, happy new year, 2018. Please stay safe and be careful. Love each other. Be blessed. And uh, I'll see you next year. Take care, guys. And this is Emmy from the Graveyard Shift. And I am punching out. All right, guys. Peace. Later.